Support for this podcast comes from the Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to making Texas businesses safer, stronger, better. Learn more about how Texas Mutual helps protect your people and your business at texasmutual.com better. Walter Massey published his 2020 memoir describing in detail the year he served as the chairman of the board of Bank of America, which coincided with the 2008-2009 financial crisis. His unusual rise from the depths of Jim Crow, Mississippi, to the heights of academic and corporate leadership make his story an unusual and fascinating one. This is No Hill for a Climber from Texas Public Radio. I'm Michael Taylor. I was fortunate to meet Walter and his wife Shirley as a kid, knowing him as just the guy who whipped my dad in tennis during the summer. My obsession with the 2008 financial crisis made me eager to read Walter's book and talk to him about his career, his leadership, and his views on race in America now and in his life. Welcome, Walter Massey. Before we get into the story of your book, which is called In the Eye of the Storm, My Time as Chairman of Bank of America During the Country's Worst Financial Crisis, which I really enjoyed, by the way, I want to give folks a brief, very brief introduction to your professional resume. You start out as an academic, as a theoretical physicist, holding a number of leadership positions at different very famous universities, Brown University, the UC System, eventually President Morehouse College. You've also headed up a number of science endeavors and laboratories, National Science Foundation, National Argonne Laboratory, and you have a very cool current gig. Uh, can you tell me about that? Yes, thanks very much. I'm chair a consortium of 12 institutions and two of our very prominent partners are right there in Texas. The University of Texas, Austin, which has a long history in astronomy. They run the McDonald's Observatory and the University of uh, uh, Texas A&M. And they are prominent partners in this venture. The Giant Magellan Telescope, when we finish it, will be the world's largest ground-based optical telescope. It's a very exciting activity and Texas is playing a big role in all of this. So you, you start out your book, you're surprised that you, a non-banker, has been thrust into this extremely important banking role at the time when pretty much all eyes are on banks and there's a, there's a lot of hard feelings and, and banks aren't doing well. It's, it's the spring of 2009, pretty much the very depths of the 2008 crisis. And on the one hand, they're happy to bring on a non-banker. On the other hand, much of the narrative of your book is about responding to federal regulators saying, you need more bankers, you need more finance people on this board. So there's this interesting tension back and forth. And as I write in the book, I say, why me? Why, why didn't the Fed say to the bank after I was chosen chair, look, uh, you don't recognize that in two days we're going to ask you to do some things and you need another kind of chairman. You need a chairman that has more banking experience. They didn't, which, to my surprise, uh, still, <laughs> I didn't understand why they thought I could do that. How close were we to going over the, going over the cliff, absent Federal Reserve and Treasury unbelievable interventions, which began under Paulson and, and W. Bush and then continued under the Obama administration, uh, that was they, they chose a very interventionist approach. As an insider or just a person who experienced it from your perspective, without that intervention, what happens? Well, I don't think we know what would have happened. <laughs> but what, whatever it was, uh, I believe it would have been very scary. 
and everyone else, not everyone, there are some economists and financial analysts who who argue, well, you should have just let the market do what it does. If the banks, quote, fail, they wouldn't have, Bank of America wouldn't have. But the key player in all of that was Merrill, that what would have happened if Merrill had gone the way of Lehman? And Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner, Hank Parson, people who were intimately involved, thought it would have been a financial catastrophe. How do you define catastrophe? I don't know, because no one knows what's on the other side of that cliff, but it wouldn't have been good. And that was our feeling at the bank. And most of the analysts and economists whose accounts I have read agree with that assessment. The good news is the theory worked out as hoped, with lots of second-guessing at the time and even in years after. It feels now, more than a decade later, like it was the right decision, but there were certainly folks who, who doubted at the time and and a few probably holdouts who would still doubt. I'm reminded there's a very brief anecdote in your book about one of the regulators saying to you, at a crucial point, maybe in the transition from Ken Lewis, he says, you should be proud of what you're doing for your country. And I think you were struck by that's different from what you're doing for your corporation or for your shareholders or your fiduciary duty, but it was a patriotic duty. Yes, that was actually Jeff Locker, Dr. Jeffrey Locker, who was president of the Richmond Fed. We were having a meeting of our special committee and he joined us. He rarely did that. And at the end, we were bringing him up to date on where we are, where we were. As he was leaving the room, he sort of looked back and said, thank you for what you're doing for your country. I began to think, now I can see he sees his job as he has to, the Federal Reserve. That, that is their job to preserve the integrity of the financial system of the United States, among others. And so that's what, how he was seeing this. So I began to think about it differently. And I think all, all of our committee, I'm not sure we did anything differently, but it brought a, a larger sense of purpose to what we were doing. Are there secrets that people don't know that you know about what happened that you want to just tell me right now? This is how it actually went down that nobody understands <laughs> no. about the financial crisis. I think I've written about everything that I know that I can talk about. <laughs> everything else is locked in an Area 51 uh, lockbox that can't come out until everybody's dead. But actually, there's not, there may be one or two things or conversations. But in terms of the big picture, people have been remarkably candid. If you read Hank Paulson's book, Tim Geithner's book, I think they've been fairly open about what transpired. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, Walter Massey talks about how far he's come from his roots in segregated Mississippi. In Texas business, success doesn't happen by accident. Even the best operations need careful planning, a great team, and loads of hard work. Texas Mutual Insurance Company has helped all kinds of Texas businesses grow and thrive for more than 30 years with expert safety guidance and great workers' compensation coverage. With the right workers' comp partner, business is safer, stronger, better. Learn more at texasmutual.com better. I want to talk about race, but I want to start by saying one of the charming things about your book is that you were 
very much a how did I get here or sort of a wonder. And one of the illustrative anecdotes that for me spells that out, you're on the corporate jet for Bank of America and this white family gets on and you don't know who they are or what they're doing. But it was a moment of, huh, I've come a long way, maybe. Well, yes, but I I have to preface by saying I grew up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which we'll get to, I'm sure. And I was going to say heights, <laughs> part of the depths of of segregation. I mean, just totally rigid segregation, an area where people had been lynched for years. So I was on one the corporate jets, going to the meeting in New York, and at times the bank would ask me that I minded if other people rode with me. And of course, I said no. No, I didn't mind. And after I got on, this group came on, my mother and father and two kids, not six or seven, boy and a girl. And I found out that they, the bank would often let people travel who needed to get somewhere for a medical treatment. They needed to get to a place to get medical treatment, and they couldn't afford it. And the gentleman, when he came on, he came back to the middle of the flight, and thanked me for allowing, for giving them the opportunity to take this plane to New York. And it was a very fancy plane. I'm sure they'd never seen anything like it. And he was very humble, almost abjectly so, and thanking me as if in his mind, you know, I own this jet. I guess it didn't make any difference to him. I was in charge in his mind. And I thought, this is a long way from being subjected to the kind of brutal racism that I had in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, is to have this white family coming up to me as a black man, and this time thanking me in this sort of humble, subservient tone for helping to get their kid treated, maybe save his life. So that was the moment. And I write in the books, I wonder what people back in Mississippi would think if they saw this or knew this. There's a opposite parallel to the early anecdotes you give about your childhood and your first job where much of the training as a bellhop is about being um, solicitous and yes ma'am, no ma'am, and kind of making sure nobody thinks you're, you think you're above your station, that your station is very clear. But what's interesting about that episode is that I have been in positions of seniority and supervisor of many white people in organizations. I was director of Argonne. I was the only first black lab director. It wasn't new to me to be in a position where I was senior to whites and supervised them and quote over them. What it was 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 this kind of personal, as you captured it, this personal uh, subservient almost attitude which was sort of the reverse of what we in the South had to assume when I was growing up. And I think that's what made it, triggered a different emotion than just being the boss of someone, who for all you know, you know, could resent you (laughs) or hate you, but they're just carrying out orders. There was a joke I was reminded of that you referenced in the book about the 2008 crisis happens. America is in a complete mess. This is the worst time. You know, right. nobody wanted to be president. Let's give it to a black man. Well, that was an onion. I don't know if people know the onion magazine, the humor magazine is now online. 
after uh, <laughs> President Obama was elected, the headline was, Black man given worst job in America. Right, right. <laughs> but that, yeah. So, yes, that's where we were. I think of 2020 as the year that whites are no longer allowed to just be indifferent to race, meaning the old attitude might have been, well, I'm not personally racist, so I don't really need to worry about this. And that became an untenable thing for white people to think. And basically, if you're not anti-racist, you're kind of part of the problem. Anyway, this is a context, and I'm guessing that you were writing the book during this, and yet race is not foreground as a as an issue of conflict except in the context of Hattiesburg um was that a choice how did that work oh that was a that was a choice and i wrote the book before 2020 okay. so i didn't want to focus it in that way i wanted really i wanted the reader to look back and see the things i had done you know and the in that led me to being able to be chairman of the bank and the experiences i had had and I didn't want to overburden the book with my, my racial entanglements and racial and issues that were so negative. If I would write it now after George Floyd, I'm, I might change it more, but still, I, may, I could write another book <laughs> if I wanted to do that. I could, you know, I could write about being almost shot in the back by two policemen in St. Louis when I was in graduate school, literally. You, you could have been one of those statistics if you... Oh, yeah, it could have been, definitely. I was on my way to school, and these two... This car pulled up with two guys in plain clothes, jumped out and asked me, forgot exactly what they asked, but they pulled their guns out and asked me to stop or do something. And I, I didn't know who they were. They didn't, they didn't even have police uniforms on. And I said, no, I, I don't know who you are. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. I may have said that. I was so scared. But there was a little store, uh, cleaners, owned by a Jewish couple that I would take my clothes about 10 feet from where we were. And I said, I'm, I'm just going to go in this store here. These people know me. Because then they said they were police. I'm not sure I believed them. And I started walking, and they had their guns out, and I expected any minute to just you know, have my back to feel something. I got in the store. The woman was very agitated about what was going on. She told them they knew me. I was a student over at Washington University, and, and they admonished me for walking away from police, and next time I could get killed, et cetera. What happened, that was this... Uh, white woman who was missing, had gone missing for about two or three days from St. Louis, and her husband came home from the army, and she was missing. And when she finally showed up, she said she had been abducted by these three black guys and held captive and raped for three days. And we had a very right-wing newspaper in St. Louis, the Globe Democrat. And they just made um, this the story of the time. And they were stopping black guys you know, all over town. And also at the same time, there had been a series of robberies pulled off by people posing as police. Wow. And stopping people and robbing them. So these two things were in my mind. Turned out... <laughs> The woman had been off with her boyfriend for the time and had not been raped at all. But it's just so typical to me, historically, of 
incidents when white women concoct these stories and blame and involve black guys and they get killed or arrested or lynched. And it's all the way back to the Scottsboro boys. So it's not a lack of, of experience with institutional and systemic racism, including nearly being a statistic yourself. It just wasn't the focus of this book. And then you have all of these, the kids now call microaggressions. You, you begin to get to a point where I did, where I would laugh at them. I've been, I was being given an honorary degree, and this was typical, honorary degree at Columbia University. We were staying at the Carlisle, the most expensive hotel in New York then, may still be. I was standing at the door waiting for the limo to come, and this little white woman comes up and says, would you get me a taxi, please? Of course, you're a hotel porter at the Carlisle. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Why, why, why else would a black guy be there in a tuxedo? Yeah. Oh, there's so many of these things I could have written about. And the jobs, I'm sure one job I lost being a university president because I was black. And other times you never know. You don't know if you've just been asked to be in the pool so they can say they had black candidate. So, yes, I could have put a lot more of those things in the book, and I did not. Morehouse plays an important role in your life in, I believe you got a Ford scholarship in 1954, the year of uh, Brown v. Board of Education, kind of plucked out of, at a young age, 16 years old, to go to Morehouse, out of state to the historically black, the best known and most prestigious historically black college. And it's been a little while since you've resigned from being president of Morehouse, but I wonder if you could just reflect in your opinion the importance of an institution like that in address, you know, on the individual basis, but then in addressing uh, race and racism and institutional racism? On an individual basis, uh, everything I have done, I'm pretty sure I owe to Morehouse, to getting me started in life. Uh, going back as president was really the best, the best part of my entire career, and Shirley agrees to that. I'm chagrined and shudder every time I think, suppose we hadn't done that. We could have spent all of our lives in this environment we were in. We would have had a lot of black friends, but we, would never, we wouldn't have experienced what we experienced at Morehouse. Morehouse is so important. Morehouse and other HBCUs have been important historically, and I think even more now when we're in an environment where we need institutions like that to demonstrate excellence as they've always done, but to be a place where uh, blacks can experience uh, the what we experience at least some point in their life before they go back out into the larger community and become leaders, hopefully. Do you consider yourself a success in life and, and, and why? Well, yes, I'm not, I think it would be dishonest and and sort of disrespectful of everyone who helped me along the way to say I don't consider myself a success. Also, I did grow up in the uh, Baptist church. I've strayed <laughs> Southern Baptist church. Uh, so not, not to be thankful for where I am at this point in life, I think would also be quite wrong. So I consider myself a success. Why? I can, I can look back over the things that I've accomplished in, in various organizations and see that 
Uh, I've done things to make them better organizations. And it's not just my opinion. I, I, people have written that, they've told me. Secondly, I'm very successful because of my family. I mean, I feel very, very fortunate with my wife, two children, three grandchildren, that we are not just well, I think we have managed to forge a, a wonderful family, and I'm very proud of that. And that may be my biggest success, <laughs> frankly, uh, of all. Uh, I know Shirley, so I'm not surprised that she is both part of your success and a, an evidence of your success together. Are there things that things you wish you knew better about business and finance that you still don't know? Oh, there's so much I don't know. I'm not sure at this point that things think I should know better because I'm not going back to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. not worth it for you to figure out the different um, capital requirements for different basal banking regulations at this point. No, no, no I've, I've done that. I've read all that. No Hill for a Climber is produced by Ben Henry and Dan Katz at Texas Public Radio. 